That was pretty great, wasn't it? <laughs> but if I'm you sitting in the seats and saying, no religion, no heaven, no hell, what are they doing singing that song in church? And what does that have to do with starting Renaissance or my story? Well, stay tuned, right? Um, as Clay said, the, the elders and the pastors thought it would be a, a great thing as we continue this uh, series in the Acts of God and the verse for the year, um, which is up here. <laughs> it's a pretty magical, eh? <laughs> Thank you, Tommy. <laughs> Quad punch, Tommy. All right. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's our verse for the year, the second half of it. So we chose this verse of the year uh, in order to refocus on our core mission, which is we're a local church helping our friends and neighbors explore and experience a growing faith in Jesus Christ. So what's the connection between those two verses, the verse and our, our mission? Well, Jerusalem is our friends and neighbors, the people that we interact with on a daily basis. And so the pastors and elders wanted me to talk about sort of how Renaissance got started, what the mission of the church originally was and continues to be. And in order to, to talk about that, I have to tell you a couple stories. The first story is how I came to faith in Christ. And the second story was sort of an aha moment in the life of my wife and myself that really motivated us and some others to start Renaissance. So let me start out with my story. So I was born in Short Hills and grew up here. I went to Pingree and then I went to Princeton. Uh, I went to grad school at MIT and then after five years there came back here and lived in Short Hills uh, when I started working on Wall Street 28 years ago. So I'm about as native as you can get to this area. Growing up, my family and I had no belief or interest in God or spiritual things whatsoever. My identity and my self-esteem all was really formed by my achievements. I was a state champion in swimming at a young age. I started on Pingree's soccer team. I was class valedictorian. I was a big believer in science as the root to all truth. And religion was for weaker and less successful people, those who needed some crutch or some solace to help them get through life. I trusted in my talents and my achievements, and I certainly didn't lack any self-confidence. So I entered college ready to conquer the world, but my world was rocked by my freshman physics lab partner, who was Nancy. She was way smarter than I am and had everything I respected and longed for. She was the sharpest and most insightful and most determined person I knew, and still is, by the way, and many of you know her, and you know that to be true. Now, Nancy grew up under very different circumstances and very difficult situation. Her parents got divorced when she was four months old and basically abandoned her. She was raised by her grandparents, who were poor, displaced farmers. And so they lived well below the poverty level and in the same town with the rest of her hundreds of relatives, literally. In fact, sort of a funny story. Uh, this may be dating me but, and, and some of you, but there was a TV show that Bob Newhart did where he was an innkeeper in Vermont, and there were some colorful characters in that show, a guy named Larry and his brother Daryl and his other brother Daryl. Well, my wife has a cousin whose name is Carrie, and she has a sister, Dawn, and another sister, Dawn. And that's a true story. <laughs> you should ask her about it sometime. It's hilarious. Um, so at any rate, so Nancy came from a different kind of upbringing than I did, obviously. 
but she totally captivated me because she came from this different environment, but she was really sharp, and she had a sense of herself and a purpose that I lacked. You see, as I made my way amidst the benefits of sort of life here, I was nagged by a need for a greater purpose in life. And that's what Nancy had. And she really attracted me, and so I pursued her. I was quite obnoxious and arrogant, but she tolerated me. I guess she sort of had to since we were lab partners, but I still don't know how she did it. Well, freshman year, when school was about to break for Christmas vacation, she wrote me a letter describing what Christmas meant to her. She explained that she believed the biblical account of God coming to earth in the form of a man, Jesus Christ, to be our savior. Here's that Christmas card and the note. We, we kept it all these years. It's pretty you know, important to us. So she wrote me this note, and I was shocked. How could the smartest and toughest person I know believe this baloney? I mean, first, there were the intellectual problems with Christianity and its teachings. I mean, everyone knew the Bible was just a bunch of old myths and full of errors and contradictions, like every other religious text. Modern science had proved it. Clearly, no one believed the accounts of Noah and the ark, Moses parting the Red Sea, Jonah in the belly of the whale, Jesus' miracles, and of course, there was the account of creation in the first few chapters of Genesis. I mean, come on, who believed that? And why would I want to follow Jesus? I mean, he was a wimp. All he talked about was forgiveness and turning the other cheek. He never stood up for himself. He and his disciples got walked on like doormats. And look how his followers abandoned their productive lives to join his cult and wander around homeless. His disciples all ended up getting tortured and killed. I mean, Donald Trump would have called him a loser. Then there were the modern Christians. Back in that era, there were airbrushed televangelists on TV who'd rant and rave, calling down fire and brimstone on unbelievers, and they just manipulated people through their emotional pleas and fake miracles. All they wanted was our money. We also, back then, had something called Jesus freaks. They were hippies who preached peace and love through Jesus, and I just couldn't relate to them either. And then there were the Bible Belt Christians who were so small-minded and self-righteous. How could there only be one way to God? What about the other religions in the world? And if you didn't believe exactly what they believed, you're going to hell. So to top it off, these Christians just didn't have any fun. I mean, they didn't go to racy movies, they didn't drink or do any of the things that a college boy wanted to do. Boy, were they missing out, right? And there was also the historical track record of the church which showed its hypocrisy and danger through the ages. The holy wars conducted by the crusaders, the inquisition, the persecutions that the church did throughout the centuries against all sorts of people, and the in internal abuses conducted against its own faithful. Not a desirable legacy to buy into. So you get my drift here. To any self-respecting New York metro area intellectual, religion was the opiate of the masses for those too weak to command their own destiny. I wouldn't want to be caught dead beholden to an antiquated, closed-minded, and flawed religion like that. It was a lie. It was a crutch. I wanted nothing to do with it. All right, so Nancy had written me this letter. I wrote back to her a scathing letter lambasting her beliefs. And in fact, 
We have that letter too. I got to tell you, it's, it's very obnoxious and it's quite embarrassing. And um, let me give you a quote. This is how I opened my letter to her. Quote, when I first read your note, I thought, this girl is screwed up. After I read it a second time, I was sure you were screwed up. <laughs> That's what it says. And it goes on from there. So here she revealed a profound and deeply personal part of herself to me, and I unloaded on her, really knowing nothing about the whole topic. I went on for four pages of single-spaced, fine-print drivel, telling her how I felt about the whole religion thing. I don't think I could have been more arrogant or clueless, honestly. So what did she do in response? Well, she had every right to bail on me, but she didn't. She told me that she had researched Christianity and found it to be true. And surely I wouldn't dismiss it without examining the evidence. So she challenged me to read the Bible and study the topic to figure out what I believed rather than just simply dismissing it out of hand. Well, how could I say no? Here's the girl whom I admired more than anybody who had her life altogether deep inside despite some really tough circumstances and especially had the answer to what I was missing a strong conviction about a true purpose in life. So I took her up on her challenge. Over Christmas vacation, I read the New Testament twice. I didn't understand a word that it said, but I was trying. And when school came back in session, I began to go to church with her on sun Sundays, and I would spend two hours over brunch picking apart the sermon and the people at the church bit by bit. I pushed back on every point. I was relentless, and somehow, though, Nancy hung in there with me. Over the course of the next six months, I talked with more people at her church. Some of them were grad students or professors at Princeton, people that I could relate to and who were credible in my eyes. I gradually grew to find Christianity's claims more reasonable and defensible. It all started making more sense. And as God was chipping away at my objections, he also began to touch my heart. These Christians seemed a lot different from the caricatures that I had in my mind. They were pretty smart and balanced and happy. They had good family lives. They weren't perfect, but they were attractive and appealing to someone like me. They cared for one another and valued each other as people created in God's image, not because of what someone had accomplished or what someone could do for them. My heart and my mind were softening and I became more inclined to think of this faith as legitimate and even attractive. As it started making more sense, and as my objections to Christianity were being addressed, I was confronted with one very uncomfortable foundational truth of the faith, that though I was created by God, I was pursuing my own path rather than acknowledging my dependence on Him and living accordingly. This self-confident high school valedictorian, this Ivy Leaguer, didn't measure up in God's eyes. I had considered myself to be a good person, but now I recognized that what I thought and said and did violated God's moral character. I was, in a word, sinful. I couldn't meet God's holy standards. Therefore, I needed to be reconciled to God through the solution that only God himself could provide. To satisfy God's own justice, God sent Jesus to die in my place to take the punishment that I deserved so that I could be forgiven by God and enter into a relationship with him. I needed to embrace this Savior in order to know God. My need for a Savior was a hard pill for me to swallow, but I had no excuse and no alternative 
but to face the truth. By the end of my freshman year at college, I committed myself to following Jesus. I was worried about what my friends would think, that I'd sold out to a stupid, indefensible religion. I still had a long way to go in understanding and embracing the faith, and it's been a lifelong pursuit, accompanied by a, proud sense of, a profound sense of peace and purpose and acceptance by God. I benefited from wise guidance about practical everyday living from both the Bible as well as mature Christians, how to be a better husband and father, how to build relationships that last. But most importantly, my character and my values are very different from what they would have been had I not become a Christian. My whole life has been profoundly changed by God. I can only imagine how much more arrogant and selfish I would be if I hadn't become a Christian. Speaking of imagine, let's come back to that Beatles song. So before I became a Christian, I love the song. I mean, who doesn't? It's a beautiful tune. It's a wonderful sentiment. Everyone living in peace with their fellow man because there's no religion or ideologies to separate us. Well, as a Christian now, I have to admit, I'm not really a big fan of that song, right? It's just plain wrong in implicating Christ and the church as the cause of the evils in the world. Left to our own devices, we humans are self-centered and will do bad things to further our own interests. When I look at my own heart, I know this is true. Have people misused Christ and religion to further their own interests or cause harm? Sure, but don't blame God for that. Rather, Christ is the source of healing and peace on earth in both practical ways and profound ways. I mean, practically, for example, Look at the majority of the hospital systems in the United States or even around the world. They're started by some Christian or Judeo-Christian denomination. Heck, look at the symbol for hospitals and medical care. It's a cross. Where do you think that came from, right? Most of the world relief organizations are also Christian-based. The Red Cross, that's none other than the blood-red cross of Jesus Christ. That's the origin of it. And peace on earth is insignificant compared to peace with God, which each one of us desperately needs. One of the most misused Bible quotes mixes these things up. How, uh, how many Christmas cards did you see this year with the tagline, peace on earth? Well, the quote is from Luke 2, when the angels appear to the shepherds proclaiming the birth of Christ. The angels say, the angels say, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace, right? That's where it comes from. Well, that's not the full quote. The full quote is, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. You see, Jesus didn't come to eradicate wars, physical wars here on earth between us, just as he didn't come to, to, to wipe out poverty or illness in our life here on earth. He came to bring peace to the war that we wage with him by extending his forgiveness and grace through Jesus Christ. He grants that favor himself. Only he can do it. There's nothing we can do to earn it. There's a passage in Paul's letter to the Romans where he writes, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. Well, I sure had been at war with God 
wanting to preserve my own autonomy and not acknowledge and submit to him. So yes, I'm not a big fan of that song right now. And I know Dave isn't either, actually. And I'm sure it was hard for him to sing it. And I'm glad I didn't have to. And you ought to be glad that I didn't have to either. <laughs> so that's my story. And perhaps some of you can identify with that. Um, I hope so. Now, let me tell you another story behind Renaissance's founding. And then I'm going to make a few observations. So I'll call this James' story. So if you roll forward from 1980, when I was a, a freshman in, in college, to 1999, my wife Nancy got a call one afternoon from one of her close friends that she had known since junior high school, and I'll call her Jane. Jane was in the emergency room of Boston's Children's Hospital. I get choked up at this one. Her four-year-old daughter, Sally, was undergoing an MRI at the moment to identify the cause of Sally's slurred speech and increasing clumsiness. So Nancy got called back at 11 that night, uh, and Jane was utterly distraught because Sally was diagnosed with an inoperable brain tumor. And the doctors gave her no chance to live past a year. So Jane and her husband Dave struggled, obviously, with this, including how to talk to her about what was going on and what would happen to her. They considered themselves spiritual people, uh, but they didn't believe in God or life after death. And so what comfort could they have and what could they offer their daughter? They were also advised that death was an adult issue and it should not be discussed with this young child, and so they didn't. Let me pause for a moment here and ask you to think about something. Right? Put yourself in their shoes. You don't have any belief in God or life after death or heaven or a personal relationship with the Creator, and you've got a four-year-old daughter whom you just love to pieces and who has a terminal illness. How do you feel? How do you cope with this? What do you think about her fate? And what do you tell her? Well, we stayed in close touch and tried to be supportive. We sent a tape recorder to Sally at the hospital and included all kinds of tapes, including children's stories talking about the God who loved her. At Sally's request, Nancy even drove our uh, oldest daughter to Massachusetts one day so she could paint Sally's fingernails green. Sally had requested that. Why green? I don't know. We talked with Jane and Dave. We even sent them a prayer that we wrote, and Dave thanked us for it, but he told us that he wished he had our faith, but he just didn't. It was heart-wrenching to watch this delightful, gifted child lose her ability to walk, to draw, and finally to speak. We watched her dedicated mom and dad pour out all the love they had on her to make her last days as full as possible. On a Friday morning, Eight months after Sally's diagnosis, Nancy got the call. Sally had died in the night, and although we knew it was coming, we were still stunned. The funeral was touching. It was a celebration of Sally's short life and wonderful personality. Yet there was no talk of the future, of life after death, or of seeing Sally again. There was no talk of God and his love for us and his sadness at one of his beloved creatures having to suffer and die. In fact, the only time the word God was uttered 
was when we sang the third verse of Amazing Grace in a very ritualistic way. The funeral was a beautiful ritual, but it felt empty and meaningless to us because it offered no real hope. So then came the aha moment to this story. After the funeral, Jane confided in Nancy that right after Sally died, after the hospice nurses had washed her body, Jane spent some last minutes with Sally. Jane said she opened, opened Sally's eyes, and when she looked into them, Jane could see that something was missing that had been there right up until the moment of death. Jane concluded that this missing thing must be Sally's spirit, her soul. And Jane said that, well, maybe, just maybe, there was something eternal and spiritual to Sally, something beyond just the physical body and the mere human existence. And maybe there was some truth to what we had been telling her. Telling her about God and our faith. So her heart opened up to God just a little bit. So what's the point of these stories? You know, how do they connect to starting Renaissance and why am I sharing them with you now? Well, I've got four sort of observations on this. The first one is that Sally's death woke us up to a truth that we had long forgotten. God is an equal opportunity savior. What, what do I mean by that? God loves all his creatures and he desires that everybody be reconciled to him. In fact, this is the most fundamental and important need that we all have. The poor, the downtrodden, the outcast, absolutely. But also, the highly educated, the worldly successful, like Jane and Dave and me. Who did Jesus spend time with? A leper, a lame man, a blind man, a prostitute, yes. But also, an entrepreneurial tax accountant named Zacchaeus, and esteemed religious leaders, many of them, including a guy named Nicodemus, and even wealthy young rulers. The Apostle Paul spent time with the Greek philosophers in Athens. Often the people who are most worldly successful are the most spiritually needy, and yet the hardest to reach. But I figure that if I can be turned around by God, anybody can. Simply put, God loves all his creatures and desires that all come to him. After all, who did Jesus die for? Everyone. Churches so often focus on reaching the impoverished inner city kid or the native in Africa. In fact, my son is going to marry a wonderful girl who grew up as a missionary kid in the bush in Kenya. And those are great causes and we should all support them and pray that God bless them. But churches often overlook their own backyard. Right here in the summit area, there are thousands of Janes and Daves and folks like me. Highly educated, successful, working hard, raising families who have never had the opportunity to explore faith in the true God in an environment that welcomes them and meets them where they live. These are our friends and neighbors. This is our Jerusalem. This is where God put us. He wants us to love them and help address their deepest need to be reconciled to God through Jesus. God's an equal opportunity savior. My second thought, God works in needy hearts. For Jane and Dave, when it mattered most, when their world came crashing down, 
all their education and all their love and all their best efforts could do nothing to make their daughter better. Their beliefs gave them no true hope or comfort to deal with this tragedy. We were heartbroken that our friends had no hope of seeing their child again, no hope of eternal life. At their darkest moment, they felt their need acutely and saw that they were more open, and we saw that they were more open to hearing God and to changing what had been their well-thought-through beliefs. God uses our setbacks to open us up to himself, to remind us that we're not self-sufficient and autonomous, to cause us to acknowledge him as God and Lord in our lives. I love what one famous philosopher said. I think you'll like this quote. Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. I don't know if you've heard this before. It's that famous philosopher, Mike Tyson. He's a boxer for those who don't know it. I barely know it. But isn't that so true? When things are going well, you just coast along, right? Your plan's working just fine. Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth or they get fired or they get cancer or they find out their spouse is cheating on them or they find out their kid's hooked on drugs, right? And it doesn't even have to be that significant. Everyone's got a plan until they find themselves yelling at their youngster for doing something childish or they don't get the promotion they were hoping for or they learn that their high school senior get into, didn't get into their top college choice, or they don't know how to handle some situation, you fill in the blank. God uses these felt needs to open us up to him. God works in needy hearts. My third observation, it takes a village. Over the years, Nancy and I have had open and deep discussions with Jane and Dave about our faith. They have seen us apply our faith in good times and in bad times, and in Nancy's case, for more than 40 years. But in their minds, they dismissed our faith just as I had because they had no exposure to other Christians with whom they could relate. We wish that there could be some church near Jane and Dave where they could meet other people of faith who were like them, who worked with them, played with them, shopped with them, who could engage with them at their level. But the only churches we could find were so inwardly focused and so culturally different from them that it seemed futile. We felt they'd get superficial answers and that their lifestyle and thinking would have been frowned on. Their honest, tough questions would not have been addressed thoughtfully or even welcomed. Going to church for them would not be a positive experience. For me, meeting Christians whom I could respect and identify with was instrumental in coming to Christ. They were knowledgeable, they were articulate about their beliefs, they were caring and lived lives that I could respect and aspire to. And they were open to my doubts and questions. They countered the negative stereotypes that I had been exposed to. And they weren't cult followers or narrow-minded. They made becoming a Christian an attractive thing, a positive step. And as our kids grew up and became involved in sports and other activities, Nancy and I found ourselves in many conversations with friends who clearly wanted to talk about parenting and marriage and other practical things, and they also had a lot of spiritual questions. For instance, we had friends in mixed marriages asking about how should they raise their kids, Jewish or Catholic, Protestant or Muslim. We shared our thoughts rooted in our faith, and we wish we could take them to a church that would have a positive impact on their search. 
where thoughtful, grace-filled Christians would treat their questions with respect and point them toward Jesus. So, in 2000, Nancy and I and three other families, including Kathy and Tammy Tobich and Carol Webster, left good churches and the comfort of our friendships and routines in those places to start a completely different type of church in this community. Different not in beliefs, no renaissance, as you know, is very traditional there, just different in emphasis and mission. We take very seriously our core value of outreach. At every step, we tried to think about our friends and our neighbors and create a place where they could come to meet God. Renaissance is designed to be a positive environment with a culture of grace where we want people to feel comfortable exploring their faith. There are a number of good churches in the area where Christians can get solid teaching and feel at home. We did not try to recreate that. It would be a waste. We did not start Renaissance to, to create a comfortable place for ourselves and our families either. Rather, we designed Renaissance for three types of people. First, for people who are wrestling with their faith, faith and searching for answers. And they're not yet Christians. They do not believe in God. They do not yet know what they believe about God or Jesus Christ. Secondly, Renaissance is designed for Christians who want a place to invite their friends who are searching. And thirdly, Renaissance is for mature Christians who can find at Renaissance an unparalleled opportunity to grow in very tangible ways, how to love their friends and neighbors and help lead them to Christ. So for example, we have awesome contemporary music because we think it resonates with our culture. Our friends go to Springsteen concerts. I mean, if they liked Gregorian chants, we'd be doing that in service. Our messages are relevant and tuned into our lives. They're as free of Christian jargon as we can make them. We'll take on real-life issues head-on. It's what we're all dealing with every day in our homes, in our offices, in our schools. We invest, invest heavily in our children and our youth ministries because parents in our community will sacrifice anything for their kids. We try to do everything in the high, highest quality way here, both because God deserves our best and because our community around here demands it. Our friends and neighbors are extremely busy and have little free time, so if we want them to spend any of it at Renaissance, it better be good. And we want you to have the confidence that if you bring your friends to any weekend service, you and they won't be disappointed. It takes a village, and we've got the village here at Renaissance. And my fourth observation, and my last one, is you're it. Sometimes coming to God can be a very long and arduous process. For me, it certainly was. Some of you may have embraced Christ shortly after you were introduced to him. Others of you may have been more like me, highly resistant and argumentative. I like to say that I came to faith kicking and screaming because I fought against it the whole way. But God worked on me slowly and deliberately. I had a lot of objections. Some were valid. Many were excuses. But I needed to work through them. And it took a whole year until I came to Christ and two or more years after that before I really embraced the faith wholeheartedly. But once I did, I was committed and it stuck. And it wouldn't have happened if Nancy hadn't if God hadn't used Nancy to push me and not let me rest until I resolved it. She stuck by me as a loyal and patient friend all along the way. She cared that much about me. Let's look at a scene in the biography of Jesus written by John where Jesus is first gathering up his followers. 
So one of his followers, Philip, found Nathanael and told him, we found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Well, come and see, said Philip. So Philip did for Nathanael exactly what Nancy did for me. He told Nathanael about Jesus, and in response to Nathanael's pushback, he challenged him to investigate it for himself. So based on Philip's urging, despite his objections, Nathanael goes to Jesus to see this for himself. He's not going to just take Philip's word for it. So back to the, back to the text. So when Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he, he said of him, Jesus said of him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Well, how do you know me? Nathanael asked. Well, Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip even called you. And then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. So Nathanael counters Jesus and is still skeptical. But Jesus answers his objections in a way that convinces Nathanael. God calls all of us to do the same thing with our friends and neighbors. If we're not going to introduce them to Christ, who is? You may think, well, I'm not qualified to do that. I don't have enough answers to their questions. I have all sorts of flaws. So what kind of example can I be to them? Well, you know what? We're all flawed. But God uses us. Look, he calls us. But be forewarned, you'll make yourself vulnerable. It's a lot easier to write a check to a charitable organization, isn't it? Or even to go on a missions trip to another country or to the inner city and share the gospel with people whom you don't know and will never see again, isn't it? It's much harder to do so with your friends and your neighbors and your club members and your coworkers and your fellow students because you have to live with them every day, right? You care about what they think and how they think about you. They may think less of you, or they may not want to spend time with you. Your livelihood may even depend on those relationships. But this is God, where God places us. I hope that our love for God and our friends compels us to help them find God. And it will take a huge commitment and persistence on your part don't expect your friends and neighbors to respond and come around instantly. You've got to be patient with them as God works in their hearts. We've had some friends whom we've spoken to for years finally make some progress. It started with an invitation to a Christmas concert and then progressed to attending an occasional service and then coming more frequently and then participating in the project. And these folks are still on the path and they're going at the pace, at their own pace as God works. And that's just fine. We don't need quick conversions. I mean, you've probably noticed in our services, we don't put any pressure on folks to repent and be saved. That just isn't how our people think and make decisions. It would turn them off. It definitely would cheapen the experience. And frankly, it likely wouldn't stick. Rather, God wants you to walk with them through the process. Take stock of your lifestyle, how you spend your time and your energy and your resources. Are you doing so intentionally to develop friendships and introduce people to Christ? Do you connect your non-Christian friends with your Christian friends? For example, when you have a 4th of July party and include some families from your daughter's Little League team, do you also invite a few of the Renaissance friends of yours or a pastor? Have you thought about having a party 
before one of the Christmas concerts and inviting a bunch of friends from your kid's school and a few Renaissance friends as well. And when you're with your friends and neighbors, do you look to create opportunities to have conversations with them about spiritual matters? When someone asks you what's going on in your life, do you tell them about your church and your small group or the project that you're attending? Years ago, I was very impressed by one Christian man's conversation with a coworker. This man, Jim, was a manager at a large corporation at the time, and one of his coworkers was having a really hard time coping with the death of his father. So during a casual lunchtime conversation when the coworker asked Jim, well, what are you doing this weekend? Jim responded, well, I'm going to church. And the coworker said, well, why are you going to church? What do you do there anyway? Jim said, well, we talk about important issues like death. So Jim touched a nerve in this coworker, which naturally led to further conversations. By the way, I just learned that a man in our congregation here recently had the same conversation with one of his coworkers. It's pretty awesome. What topics do you discuss with your friends and neighbors? Do you stop at the superficial level of conversations about the weather or the Super Bowl or the election or the stock market? Or do you go a little deeper and talk about personal things, your career aspirations and your own setbacks, your relationships with your spouse and your kids? These are touchier subjects, and you're going to be more vulnerable. Do you go even further and talk about your own personal struggles or your faith in God? I mean, how else are you going to have real impact and offer real help? God wants to use all of us to reach our friends and neighbors. You can build trusted friendships, help our friends find substantive answers to their questions, and address their deepest need putting them on the path to find God. What's more important that you could do with your life than to do that? You're it. So, I have a homework assignment for all of you. This will be quick and easy, actually. I want each of you to commit in your mind to praying for one person every single day this year. It doesn't have to be long. It can be a few seconds or a few minutes, whatever works for you but be consistent every single day, please. Who should you pray for? Well, it depends. If you identify with my story or Jane's story and you're still exploring the truth of Christianity and your relationship to God, I want you to pray for yourself. Ask God to work in your heart. Ask God to provide you with a trusted friend to help you along your journey. Someone who's gonna both prod you and encourage you, someone who won't let you rest until you've settled this matter. Pray every day for yourself. If, on the other hand, you're already a follower of Christ, I want you to pray for one close friend or neighbor of yours. Ask God to work in their heart. Ask God to give you the opportunities to talk to them about your faith and make yourself available when that happens. Love them sacrificially. Be there for them. They need your care and support and you have a special and uniquely helpful message to bring to them about God's love. Be patient and be persistent. Pray for them every day. So with that, let's pray. Lord, as we have our eyes closed, I want each of us to say a silent prayer for that person that we've identified. It may be 
ourselves or it may be a friend or a neighbor or a family member. Thank you, God, for being the answer to our deepest need, for reconciling us to yourself, our creator, through Jesus, and for giving us the privilege to bring this great message to our friends and our neighbors here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Have a great week.